everything will be okay. At 20 years old, I was terrified. So I really wish, I wish I just knew that everything always works out. Everything will be okay. Hello, and welcome to the Waking Youth Podcast. Today, we're connecting with Shiva. Shiva is a TEDx speaker, a program designer and a global educator, teaching people how to see the why behind the what and take control over their mental programming. Cultural intelligence, diversity and inclusion and leadership development are her areas of expertise. And in less formal terms, Shiva pretty much teaches people how not to be assholes. Tune in to listen to her journey of fitting in as an Iranian refugee in the US, Italy and Spain, as well as insights on how to finally stop trying to fit in so desperately and simply belong already. And honestly, if you too are a university student or young professional feeling a bit lost and trying to find your way in the midst of all this fog of uncertainty, well, I invite you to listen in and allow this woman to give you a virtual hug with her words. Let's dive in. Hello, Shiva, and welcome to the Wake Youth Podcast. I usually begin my interviews by expressing the ways in which my guests remind me to make sure I'm not sleepwalking through my waking state. And I remember that first um, time when we met, you were giving me a webinar on cultural intelligence, and you definitely reminded me to not sleepwalk through my waking state and to specifically question my assumptions. Um, and I think uh, you really gave me a lot of tools for me to practically apply to my life. And then the other thing is that when I first reached out to you after this webinar, one of the things that I really appreciated was the fact that you were so down to earth. I immediately felt like I was in a safe place and I could totally be myself. So even before we begin the, the questions and the interview, I wanted to thank you for having that humility of, of talking to everyone in the same way and in the with the same enthusiasm uh, so thank you for coming today thank you oh god and I definitely needed to hear that because you see that as a strength but a lot of people don't so I appreciate that thank you you're welcome why don't you start by sharing your beautiful story of jumping around from place to place I think we can start there oh that's a long one um all right, I'll try to keep it a little bit shorter. So I was born in, in Iran during the Iran-Iraq War, and then we left when I was about four years old as refugees to Italy. That was our processing center. That wasn't our final destination. But we were there for about one year, and then um, we finally got the okay to leave. So we, we left and we went to the United States. We weren't supposed to go to the United States. We were supposed to be in Canada, but very unfortunately, the person who was... Um, meant to sponsor us my uncle he died in a car accident so we were routed to the united states yeah 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 oh, wow. yeah and it's I didn't know that. it's it's not something i share so often but nowadays i'm like i really wish i were freaking canadian um aside from obviously wishing my that had never happened to my uncle and and it does make you think uh, i mean two things were lost in that day it was a beautiful life was lost but then also the potential and possibility of a life was lost, um, of lives, of, you know, the lives of, of my, my parents, my sister and myself. So we were routed to, to the United States and I grew up in 
New York City in Queens. And then when I was, I don't know, going to university, I knew, I don't I just wanted to get away. I wanted, I wanted something a little bit different. So I went to Massachusetts, um, studied there for a few years, could not stand it, hated it with a passion, really didn't enjoy that time. It was re- also my first day of university was September 11th, 2001. So I was like, it, you know, I went from being a New Yorker to be Iranian Muslim potential terrorist overnight. Um, so I thought, fuck this shit. And I apologize. I don't, no, no. <laughs> you don't mind my curse. Um, no one apologize, please. <laughs> excellent. Because um, I do love me some cursing. So um, love that. <laughs> it always gets my attention. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just enjoy it. It's not even I do it for attention. It really is just... <laughs> I love, I love the feeling of a curse word in my mouth. Mm-hmm. I love it. Never directed at someone, ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, ever, just to emphasize ever, more life. Right. Well, I'll say, I'll say some horrible things sometimes to my partner, as you do, which is never fair. Um, but I will need to be, I will need to have gotten myself into a really bad state to do that. But yet, I... Cursing at someone is, is for me, a, a personal sin. Cursing itself, no, but cursing at someone, no. Um, there's very, very few people in the world and in history that's ever deserved that right for me. Because it also means that they've gotten to me. But that's a whole other, a whole other shame. Exactly. Yes, but I think it's kind of your... Um... Uh, it's part of your identity in a way sometimes when when um when talking a- about you about your webinar <laughs> you're kind of shiva <laughs> yes that one that curses the most <laughs> yeah so my question is i know we're deviating a little bit but i think this is this is relevant <laughs> uh do you think that you do that because you just like the feeling of saying those words in your mouth or because you also know that it grabs people's attention? Um, no, actually, it started because I had always had conversations to myself with myself. So when I was a kid, I didn't speak very much, to be honest. Um, I was sent to the school counselor because I was I was I can't say I was mute, but I really did talk and, and teachers got worried. So but I was having conversations with myself and these were conversations I just didn't feel safe enough to have with other people. And a lot, of, a lot of it involved cursing as well, to be perfectly honest. But I was just always told so much that this is inappropriate, that this is not okay. You can't, especially in the United States, like it's such a closed culture in so many ways. Um, and, and this is connected, I promise. But, but then growing up and I, I studied history and literature which required a lot of papers, a lot and lots and lots of papers with very academic language. And I can't stand language like that. Language that makes things difficult to understand for me is, is a complete waste of language. And so when I moved to Spain and I, and, and I didn't speak any Spanish, like all of this kind of came back to me and this idea of I have these conversations in my head. I don't feel they're appropriate to speak out loud. Um, and when I do speak, I feel like I have to construct my language in a way that's super formal that just creates barriers to communicating and understanding um and i realized you know what cursing is a very easy way to express an idea and almost every culture will get it so unfortunately for better or for worse especially english curses have you know become second nature to many people across the world and so it's a very easy way to communicate 
And that's why I use it as well. Partly because I can't stand formal language. It's never been a part of me. Um, but also because it's just, I think, easier to, to get the message across. Mm-hmm. And it's also relatable. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's very powerful. And we, I think this, the topic is fascinating of um, choosing between communicate, communicating something with very intellectual, complex language or going for more, a simpler way. And, and it's what you're saying. At the end of the day, if you really know what you're talking about, then you don't need to make it complicated. Um, you just need to send your message across in a very succinct and on point mm-hmm. uh, way. Right. And that is the real art of of public speaking and, and even writing. Oh, yes. And I love words. Um, and I think it's great when you are talking with people in your industry, in your field, and then you do have more language, more words to choose from and really get in detail. But ultimately, mm-hmm. then you'll when you're sending the message to the general audience, to the general public, then the point is to make it to make it simple. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So when I'm speaking to people who understand, like you said, my quote unquote language, I can use, I can use the technical words and it is easier because it's, you know, you don't have to explain it broadly. You just use that one word. But if I am speaking to a group of, of individuals who have no idea what I'm talking about in terms of cultural intelligence um, and, and something like cultural intelligence is, is just so deeply emotional that I think saying something like, have you ever experienced this and this and this, and then thought, what the fuck? You could relate to that. You know, I actually can't think of another way to express that. Yes. <laughs> and I want people to relate. I want people to feel that emotion because once you connect <laughs> to the emotion, the idea stays with you longer. Yes. Okay. So now that we explored why you curse a lot, <laughs> let's go back to your story. And right now, <laughs> what you do basically is teach people how to not be assholes yes we're also sharing your story so um and you also shared that you pursued a degree in history and literature so how did ha- that happen why did you travel so much and how did you end up as a person dedicated to teaching others how not to be assholes or reminding them <laughs> <laughs> well it's actually you know it's it's been a perfect tangent then because where the where i stopped telling the story which was september 11th and you know university and hating that space that's that was actually the start of me conscious being conscious and aware that perhaps my path is going to be different you know so i'll start from that point and then continue the story and i'll get to how i got to where i what i do now okay so after the twin towers crashed and our, you know our lives changed forever in the united states and for me what that meant was like i said before overnight i went from being a new yorker to being an iranian muslim potential terrorist and and i realized how fragile our identities are and how quickly something that you identified with can be taken away from you right and i felt i felt that i had no voice and no choice in that and i say i felt that because later on i realized no i could have stayed i could have um kind of defended that identity if I wanted to. But for me, I just thought, I don't want to. Like, why should I have to defend who I am? Why should I have to defend my existence? It was exhausting. And I thought, fuck this shit. I don't want to deal with this. And at this point, I don't want to live in the United States. I don't want to give the United States my money. Don't want to be indoctrinated into this culture anymore. Picked up my stuff, went to the UK, finished my my studies there. 
I'm just curious to um, understand how did people actually treat you and how did that make you feel? Like, were they um, obvious, very direct about it or they were, it was kind of a more subtle judgment and, and discrimination? Well, it was, it's, it's, it's a wonderfully confusing reaction because the reaction is one, there's a difference between the reaction that I was receiving directly from people and the reaction that I was seeing around me directed at my people. So on the one hand, um, keep in mind, and the audience doesn't know this being a podcast, I am, I'm Middle Eastern, but I'm very white passing. You know, I'm very light skinned. I've got green eyes. Um, my hair is brown, but, you know, I, I, I can come off as European very easily. But in the United States, there is still always this question of, wait, where are you from? And like, where are you really from? Even if I said New York, no, but like, where are you really, mm -hmm. really from? That horrible fucking idiot question that we all receive and for me that was always a trigger of like why can't I just be from the United States and after 9-11 I was terrified to answer that question so I just said I'm from New York where are you really from I'm from Queens New York where are you really really from I'm from Forest Hills Queens New York do you want to know the street I can tell you the street address because I realized once I started to if I did say I'm from Iran there was no more questions. There was no more conversation, no more discussion, right? It was people would either just kind of back out in the sense of emotionally, intellectually back out of the conversation, or they just showed no curiosity, no interest, nothing whatsoever. And, and no intention to even try to understand what I might be living through. They didn't even conceive that I might be living through a tough time. So that lack of even awareness that this person in front of me, who is from Iran, a country that's now been labeled part of the access of evil, perhaps they might be going through a tough time. That thought didn't even cross their minds. That was enough for me to go, this is complete lack of empathy and emotional intelligence. So that was the personal level. I never got any direct at that point and no, nothing actually directed at me you know for being Iranian or Muslim um, but in the broader context like you know studying history and I studied a lot of Islamic history and Middle Eastern history and the comments that the students would make raising their hands in classes like well if Islam is the religion of peace why are they the ones who are always killing people why are they the ones always going to the, going to war you know questions like that would come off really often or we would be at house parties and end up with a group of drunken university students standing in a circle, chanting, bomb the Middle East, bomb the Middle East. And here I am, you know, me and my friends were from, you know, originally from the Middle East as well, or from India, um, or black. So none of us really felt very comfortable in general in a state like Massachusetts. But, um, and I'm sure people are going to hate on me for even saying that. But, <laughs> but imagine that. Imagine being then surrounded by a bunch of very drunk people who see themselves as different from you and chanting, bomb the Middle East, bomb the Middle East. And then a guy that night trying to pick you up and asking where you're from and where you're really from and being like, no way in fucking hell am I going to be answering that. I don't even know. I was I was also too young to process all of this, you know? And, and like, I should have just left those parties, to be honest. But I also wanted to belong or fit in, not belong. I wanted to fit in, so I stayed. But it was, it, it would just... Yeah, so it, this is what I mean by there was a difference between the conversations I had directly with people versus that, that wider context of how people were acting and what they were saying. So nothing was ever directed at me personally, but it, it didn't mean you didn't feel it. You know, it was like the air around you was tainted with all of this prejudice and bias and hatred. Mm-hmm. 
It's interesting that you bring up the concepts of fitting in and belonging. I've mentioned this in previous episodes. I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Brene Brown. Oh, yes. Okay, so we're on the same page here. But it's just very powerful uh, distinction of fitting in. You're really trying to please. You're trying to be part of something, but therefore you should alter yourself Mm -hmm. and, and behave in a certain way in order to be part of that group. But then belong is quite the opposite, where you're just really being who you are. And ultimately, that's when you truly belong to to a group of people and I think especially young people it's what you were saying you know like even if we have a good idea of who we are even if we talk to ourselves a lot I think that when we're when we're growing up there's always a a big part of us that is trying to fit in because ultimately what we want to do is to belong right but the way that we find and before we found find our kind of people it might be tricky that process of really just ignoring this need to try to fit in so bad oh it's hard it's super tough and it's it's this weird not weird but it's a dangerous downward spiral because yeah you're you're always trying to fit in but by fitting in you're adapting yourself you're constantly changing yourself and twisting and molding and that means that maybe you don't stand up in certain situations that you would otherwise situations happen that you would have never gotten yourself into because that's not the kind of person you are um or that you start you know start behaving in ways that just don't fit you and you don't feel comfortable with and dressing in certain ways and saying certain things and little by little you start losing yourself and it, you get farther and farther away from this goal of belonging because the close the more you're trying to fit in the more of yourself that you are letting go of and you're cutting and you're snipping and you're taking away so that how could you even ever belong anywhere if you don't know who the fuck you are and you've lost yourself completely on that path? Do you think that journey ends, that journey of fitting in? Do you feel now uh, older, wiser? Yes. Do you yes. feel like you still, in a way, unconsciously try to fit in and then you... Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And and it's, um, it, you know, there's always something at stake. There's always something you're going to gain or you're going to lose. So when I was younger, for me personally, that fitting in was, um, I needed friendship, I needed community. I, I especially growing up in a, in a country that always made me feel like I don't belong. I felt so desperately the need to belong, but I didn't have access to belonging, so I settled for fitting in. As an adult, the stakes are, are different. I do have my tribe, I do have a relationship where I feel I belong. I have a family where I feel I belong. I have friendships where I feel I belong. But with work, there's money involved. There's livelihood. And that's that's the loss. That's what's at stake. You know, how much am I willing to bend to be able to fit into this organization to then that pays for my survival in many ways. Working for myself, that's, um, yeah, that's a tough one. So, because it's like, I can't bend to every client. I can't mold myself to everything. So now it's become be myself as loud and as proud as I possibly can be so that the ones who, who either know they need me or who want me will come to me. But there is still that pressure for sure. There's twice now, for example, I work with executive education companies and two of them have come back to me and said flat out, you're not corporate enough. We can't put you forward for as many clients. We can't put you forward for many clients. 
one of them just doesn't put me forward for any clients, period. I just work with the same clients who know me and love me and that's it. And another one very kindly had this conversation saying like, could you maybe tone this down a bit? Could you be more careful with this or whatever? And, and I had to make a decision at that point of do I or don't I? What am I going to lose? Not only in terms of finances, but in terms of self-respect and love for myself and who I am. Um, you know, and, and especially with my work and the kind of work that I do, I can't not be authentic. So the, the challenge is always there, but you do get stronger and you do, you do start to learn how to realize more and more what's really at stake. And, and sometimes, you know, that, that part of losing yourself is just not worth any money. Mm-hmm. And so you, you learn to stick with that. And trust that being who you are will be enough. It's very interesting that you bring this up. I was I was catching up with a friend from Porto, and she had a similar story in the sense that she um, tried to fit in the corporate world for some years and she was really good at what she did she was mostly working on communication and branding but then at some point uh, she felt like what she was doing and the kind of people she was surrounding herself with was just too toxic for her and who she is as a person and so she kind of left that environment and now first thing she actually was become a yoga teacher And now she's also teaching in in a university, but she was just sharing with me what she felt because this is something that I'm starting to feel, right? That in some ways I would like to be part of the corporate world because I do think that businesses have a power to really drive conscious change. But on the other hand, I don't want to surround myself with people who are slightly different from who I am and what my values are and, and what I stand for in my life, knowing that I'm very connected to my my philosophies and my spirituality, right? Ultimately, what what we were discussing is what you're saying now, that it's very important for us to try to be as authentic as possible. And that's probably also that something that comes with age, that you're just more sure and you trust and you're not afraid to be yourself. But then, and this is something you and me, Shiva, we talked about this before, this idea that uh, maybe the corporate people are the people who need your webinar the most, right? How do you navigate this? Because on one hand, you do want to feel good. You want to be with your kind of people. But on the other, these are really the people who who need to listen to you. But then probably if you went there and you would be 100% Shiva, they they wouldn't give a fuck about what you're saying, right? And so I think the conclusion I reached with my friend, which is similar to what you were saying now, is how can we then find a balance of, yes, I'll try to be as authentic as possible, taking consideration all the con- conditions and the, c- the conditioning that is kind of necessary. So perhaps you do 70% of the authentic work with your kind of people, but then 30 because that's kind of your purpose and your mission in this world, right? But the, there's a few things I want to pull out, even from, so from the beginning of what you were saying, that, yeah, I get this feeling of you want to be around people who fully understand you and accept you. But I've also realized that doesn't have to be people who are similar to you. And this is the, I mean, this is when we talk about diversity in terms of invisible diversity, that's part of it. That's the, the beauty and the need of it. Yeah, so it's, it's all the parts of who you are inside that make you different from the person sitting next to you, right? So, you know, twins 
they could they were raised in the same way they can look the same way they can um they were raised with the same values they may have even done the same sports they have the same strengths in many ways but their their personalities make them very different the way that they think is going to be different their values will be slightly different the way they perceive the world is going to be different um so so that's that's the invisible diversity that's that's there and I'm thinking the best organizations and the best teams are the ones that have a Shiva, but then also have someone who is very different from Shiva, very, much more conservative in, in many ways and also much more formal in many ways, but that the two people understand the value of each other and fully accept that and are willing to listen without their own prejudices in there. Um, and that they're both willing to, to use their strengths. And, and that also means that sometimes we're going to go the way of Shiva and sometimes that we're going to go the way of the other person. But we always still accept the person as they are and never, never go into the area of, well, that way of being is just not okay. Mm-hmm. So there is definitely, there is that possibility. I've seen it. I've, I've created teams like that myself. People who are very different from me, but we accept each other's ways of being, even if it annoys the fuck out of us, we accept the way of being of the other. And we realize in some situations that way of being is actually more appropriate and is better and will get us farther. So let's do that for now and then we'll switch to this. And then that comes to what you said later on of that, yeah, it's you, you, you find different parts of yourself. So there is the very in, informal Shiva, the one who really likes to connect more on the human level, but I can go the formal right as well. I will never be super formal ever. And I will never be super corporate, but if I need to, I can play the role every now and then, but I will still show up. Like you said, 70% as who I am fully. And yeah, I do agree that corporate is definitely where this work needs to be done. Actually the other day, a friend of mine um, who's done the course sent me, sent me a picture that said, uh, like it was a cartoon, you know, uh, teaching the world to not be assholes. And then the image next to it said, Ooh, that sounds too harsh. And then the image below said leadership training. And then the next image was, Oh yes, clapping. So it is basically, I mean, a lot of people know this instinctively that the leadership training we do a lot of times is teaching people to not be assholes. Um, but to be, to be honest, I see, more and more people incorporate embracing that. And I see more and more being okay with that and craving, craving that. Um, so the, the work, the need for the work is there, but also the desire is there, which for me is, is a, it's a really good sign. I have no idea if this has answered your question, to be perfectly honest. But uh, I forgot my question, but I'm very happy <laughs> I'm very very happy to hear that because obviously, as I'm entering the job market and the corporate world now, I'm feeling like people do want that change and companies want that change. And even more than that, that companies, if they want to be truly successful, then they have to have diverse teams and they have to have this self-awareness. Otherwise, they will not be successful, right? So this is, I'm so I'm happy that you, that you <laughs> are on that on that bridge here it's there yeah and i think more and more people like you need to get into corporate because if if we're and we're we're also saying this very down corporate right like what is corporate? 
just private companies. Um, but we tend to mean, you know, larger international private organizations that have been around for a long time, that has very, very established and very strong cultures that have not changed in decades. So I think that's the kind of area that, that most of the time we're talking about when we speak corporate. They're doing a lot of good stuff in there, though, and they're trying. And, and they do have, um, they have senior leaders who, who want to make those changes and who see the need for it. But that change takes time. The more and more people, however, that also start moving in from the bottom up who have this mentality, then the easier that shift is going and the faster that change is going to happen. Yeah. Every time that I start talking about this topic, what I think is this need for us to think and speak about a different kind of value. So not only the profit, but then... What we're talking about here is the well-being of all multiple stakeholders, right? So this is this is what I'm thinking lately of how can we demonstrate and prove this in, the importance of this more emotional value of companies and why they should invest in this, right? Mm-hmm. Oh God, the the return on investment of being a better human. Mm-hmm. It's not, um, it'd be great if someone actually did a study on that one. I have trouble with that. I have trouble with this idea of trying to prove or explain why that's a good thing. Because for me, it's like you do the right thing to do the right thing. Exactly. You don't do the right thing because it's a business opportunity. I mean, if it is, great, great. But you still have to first want to do the right thing. Basically, you there was something in the world that you recognized that mm-hmm. uh, you could change, mm-hmm. right? And you could make people not assholes <laughs> and start teaching people about and facilitating training on cultural intelligence and leadership programs. Mm-hmm. But then what you're saying now, this is just a way for me to connect all the dots, yeah. basically. But what you're saying now is in a way that you feel kind of like you're selling your soul kind of thing. If you have to explain in practical scientific research terms how this adds value right when it's something so personally emotional so how do you feel about yeah about oh i'm exaggerating a little bit just for the sake of connecting the dots how did you feel that moment that you decided to make this your business of creating this kind of leadership and do you feel bad in some ways for you know at the end of the day you still have to think about your finances right Mm, yeah i don't feel bad at all I feel wonderful because for me, it started at the foundation is still, I want, I want to save the world. I've always wanted to save the world. And the need I found was cultural intelligence, social intelligence, and emotional intelligence. Um, and the path that I followed was the cultural intelligence one, because it's, it, for me, combines the social intelligence and, and emotional intelligence. And, and I know, I know that this is a way to help people be better people, to be better humans. And I, I have absolutely no qualms about making money or making a living from this, because what that means is I can expand. That means that I can maybe hire other trainers to do the same work, and we can we can we can spread this even farther and do more good in the world. And and I also don't have any issues with money, to be perfectly honest. In the sense of I think money is a great thing. I don't think it's a bad thing. I I. I don't think there's a problem with wanting to make money. And and I feel in general, a lot of times there's this kind of anxiety or fear if I'm doing something good for the world, I shouldn't benefit from it. And I'm like, well, why the hell not? There's, I do believe that there's always enough to go around. We're just not sharing it the right way. I, I yeah, 
that it wasn't difficult for me to reconcile that in any sense. And in fact, it felt amazing. It felt wonderful to be able to make a living and live from something that is, I think, so needed and that I love so deeply. It felt liberating. That's a very cool way to think about this. It's something that I'm working on myself also to just let go of, of, of this idea that it should be separate, your service to the world and then your corporate life and ultimately how you make money. But I think that this is why I'm also so fascinated and so into the world of social businesses, right? Because this is, this is the point of, at the end of the day, money is a, the compensation for something you do that is a value to society. So why shouldn't it be about actually adding value to the world, right? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And and if you talk to I think one of the, the things I always find fascinating is when we go into these you know, large multinationals and we do these global programs and global programs where we talk about purpose, right? So things become trendy, let's be honest, and purpose was one of the things that became trendy, but because at the end of the day the idea is if you have a strong purpose that's then connected to the organization, then you will be more engaged and you will be more productive and you will be happier and work better, et cetera, and everyone benefits. So a lot of organizations were focusing on purpose in their trainings. And so many, so many of these senior leaders came back with, you know what? I can't connect. My personal purpose just does not connect with the organization. It just doesn't. Um, and, and in those moments, you're like, you, you sense the personal torture that they have. There's this, you realize they have this light bulb moment of what the hell have I been doing my entire life then I've been chasing the promotion or I've simply been promoted because I'm really good at my job. Technically, maybe I don't necessarily have leadership skills, but I'm good at my job technically. So I've been promoted, but I never asked for it. Mm -hmm. Or I did ask for it, but I just wanted the status. I wanted the power to be able to make decisions and make impact. But I never stopped to think, what is my deeper why? And now that I've had the moment to stop and think, what is my bigger or deeper why? I'm realizing it's not really connected to what the organization does. And so now I've spent my entire money making a living off of something I don't necessarily truly believe in. Mm. And... Quite a few of them quit, start pro other projects, move on to different organizations. And, and quite a few of them also stay because they just go, I, I don't see how to reconcile this. I don't see how to connect the dots now. So this, I'm trying to think, why did I go off on this tangent? This was connected to making money from something that you love and that connects yeah. back to your deeper reasons. Um, and for you, you want to... You, you, You know, I'm guessing social impact is the kind of organizations that you want to work with because of mm -hmm. it combines that for you. But just taking uh, what you are saying now, I've also talked about this in previous episodes. I've explored the um, Elizabeth Gilbert has some work on this, the author of Eat, Pray, Love, the book. Mm -hmm. And she introduces this and defines the concepts of work, vocation, career and job. 
right? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of similar in a way. It's related to what you're talking about now. And I also think it's important for us to talk about this. And my intention was really to explore um, your journey in professional and personal and how uh, it, um, it merged in some ways. But I think it's important to make this distinction and to understand that the distinction she makes is that job is something that you do. Uh, it's an utilitarian thing, right? So you, you, get, you do this job, for example, you, um, you bartender mm-hmm. to get that money because you need that money, right? And then the career would be something that is more uh, thinking about the long term, but still very much in, in, in this utilitarian perspective. You can apply some of your talents in this career, but it's not something that comes from your core, from your essence. So there's job, there's career, there's, there's vocation. Ah, and then the fourth one was hobby. So the vocation... The vocation is something that is really true to who you are as a person, right? It's something that you always knew intuitively that this is what you were meant to do. Mm-hmm. But this doesn't have to necessarily connect to what you do in terms of job or career, right? So an example would be you could have a, found- a foundation or work for a nonprofit where you really connect with people and you really explore and are able to have this channel where you just... Um, something that... Make, makes your heart sink that it really truly comes from you but then have a more material materialistic career more focused on how can you make money and apply your talents in a more practical way and then the hobby is something that you just do for fun you don't need to be especially good at it just something that makes you feel good right and and it's funny because i think that there's, there's not one way of doing things right so you mm-hmm. shiva might feel like it makes sense for you to connect your vocation to your career right and then even if at some point you feel like that doesn't make sense for you, then you can separate uh, the two, mm-hmm. right? But then there's some people, like you were mentioning some of your friends, who might think, okay, I'm really good at my career. Like I've built uh, this career for years and years and years. I'm working on this. I made solid money. I achieved some great it's great for my family, great for my status, but then I need something that will make me feel more fulfilled and I know what my vocation is. So I'll try to do something, a separate project in order to do this, right? But I think all of these options should be on the table, right? But then the idea is that you know what is that hobby that makes you feel good, but also what is your vocation? What is that thing that you're truly that truly drives you, right? Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. And I, I, I realize as you're saying that, a part of me has bought into this idea of everyone, everyone should have their vocation and their career be the same thing. Mm-hmm. It, that's just how it has to be. I mean, why are we, why are we choosing to settle for anything else? Um, mm-hmm. Interesting. I didn't realize I had bought into that idea and I had, and you're right. There are many different ways to do it. I, I look at my partner and he's got um, his vocation definitely is in the kitchen. He's he's a chef. He's brilliant at it. He loves it. And it's, it's you know, being a chef is just 10% cooking. 90% is everything else. It's the strategy behind it. But, he, you know, he can't necessarily make money from that. So now he's switched and he's got a job. Hmm. But his hobby is still definitely cooking. Um, and, and I never understood this. I'm like, why? Why don't you do something else within the hospitality world, like specifically in restaurants? Maybe you can be a consultant for restaurants because, I mean, he walks into a restaurant. He can tell you exactly what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong, how to save money, how to be more efficient, et cetera. I'm like, why? I just do that. And for him, it's, I think he's just gotten tired of 
making money from what he loves mm. and then it it stops becoming something that he loves because there's that pressure around it so he's and it's also a very tough tough career to have in the end um but he's he's an example of that of how you can very clearly separate um these different things and he had a he had a job mm-hmm. that ended up becoming a vocation that then the vocation ended up becoming a career and a vocation. Mm-hmm. And now he's decided to separate it again and have a hobby and, and have a job. It's very fascinating. I never thought of it that way. Thank you for introducing me to that. You're welcome. I'm glad that you bring that example because one of the things that she explores in another book, Elizabeth Gilbert, Big Magic, <laughs> um, it's a book on creativity and she shares a little bit of her journey, which is very similar to the one, actually the opposite way. So she starts by having a job, having thinking of a career and on the side, she's always writing, right? Uh, and then at some point she does become a writer. But one of the things she says while growing up was that she didn't want to live off her writing. So she would, for example, waiter during her daytime and then at night she would write because she didn't want this pressure of making money to take away um, from her love towards her vocation, towards her art. So yeah, you just have to decide for yourself what is the thing that you want to do. And in your case, Shiva, um, was it always clear um, what you wanted to do? No, please. I mean, how did it feel that moment when you decided, like, okay, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna teach people how not to be assholes. <laughs> uh, so to answer the first question, I had no fucking idea, like not a damn clue. And I even remember, I remember being in elementary school and even throughout high school, not even seeing a future for myself. And I, to be perfectly honest, and people get weirded out when I say this, but. I didn't think I would live this long and not, not for any specific reason. I mean, it's not because I was in any sort of, um, you know, I didn't have any habits that would really damage me physically. So I I didn't do drugs. I didn't drink, drank very, very little uh, when I was at at that age, at least (laughs) at at that age. So I don't know why I didn't think I was going to live past like 21, but I never thought I was going to live past 21. 21. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, So it, it just, I, I didn't want to go to university. I wanted to just travel the world and work because I really saw nothing, absolutely nothing. And mm-hmm. even now, thinking of the future, I, it's 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 a little fuzzy, but mm-hmm. it's still better than the... I'm not joking when I say when I thought of my future, when I was even like your age, there was like darkness, just complete <laughs> void. <laughs> And it was, it was terrifying. It was fucking terrifying. So I never thought of it. Um, and, and, and I tried, man, I tried, like, I tried to, th- I tried so many temporary different, like so many different temp jobs just to see what I like this, what I like this, what I like this, what I like this. Like I was very strategic about trying to find something. Um, and I just didn't. And, and so I ended up. This point was after college. Yeah, exactly. And I did, I mean, I worked in high school, I worked as a cash register, as a cashier in a supermarket. And then I got an internship at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which was like a dream for me because when I was younger, I wanted to be an artist. So most of my life, I wanted to be an artist when I was a kid. Um, I gave that up when I gave that up at like 16, 17 for very specific reasons. But then, um, but still, I was super elated to get this internship. Um, 
And so I, I did that for a bit. And, and since then I always worked and yeah, I, so I, I tried different things from the age of 17 mm. till like the age of 25, I'd say. Mm-hmm. And nothing, nothing stayed like absolutely and nothing. Like be an artist at that point, or at that point you already dropped the idea. <laughs> no, I already dropped the idea. I wanted to be a writer, so I mean, a different kind of artist. I wanted to be. Um, I loved drawing and painting mm-hmm. before, and then when I got to like from high school, so from sixteen then to to twenty five, it was writing that I was obsessed with, and I would have loved, loved to make a, a living off of writing, and I tried, but I just. I don't know. I just, it, it didn't work. I didn't love it enough. I got published once in a, in a book, in an anthology. Really? Yep. There's... What did you write about in mythology? It was a poem. So it was a poem um, and it was an anthology of Spain. So, so writes and poets in Spain. So I was living in Spain at that time. And, and it was a poem about the experience of going from not understanding a language. So it just sounds like noise. Mm-hmm. It sounds like a mix of noise and music. And uh, and then getting to the point where you understand the notes and you understand the nuances and you can actually understand the language. So it was a poem of that transition. Um, and you wrote that in English or in Spanish? In English. In English. <laughs> in English. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. So I, just because I can understand doesn't mean I can yet write poetry in the language. <laughs> yes. Um, but I, I do remember that feeling of, I had vocations, I had passions, you know, I, I loved words and I loved drawing, but never considered um, really making a career out of it and never knowing and seeing a complete blank space in front of me, complete darkness and a void. And then I do remember, I remember the moment finding cultural intelligence and going, holy shit, this is it. <laughs> And it was completely by chance, like completely by chance. It was a bit of like building up to it. Yeah, the background in the sense of having lived such a diverse life, um, also then growing up in New York, living in the UK. And I lived in Ireland for a bit, lived in Spain. So I had already realized some of this stuff, and but I didn't know that I knew it. And I didn't even know what it is that I knew. So it was by chance that I came across an article that mentioned this thing called power distance, this idea of, of hierarchy and respect towards hierarchy and how some cultures, it's um, they have a higher power distance and in other cultures, they have a lower power distance, which means the extent to which you accept kind of inequality and the extent to which you accept um, hierarchy. And, and I was like, fuck, this makes sense to me. And mm-hmm. I get both sides of it. I get <clears throat> both low power distance and high power distance. Why is it that I get it? And they had mentioned this one researcher called Hofstede, Geert Hofstede. And so then I started to like obsessively research this person. And then I found out more about the cultural codes and I found more about cultural intelligence. And as I was reading, I was like, oh, I feel like I'm breathing this in. It's something so natural to me. I understand it. Even if they're using some jargon, I get it, right? I don't need to look up every, you know, mm-hmm every other word because even if I don't fully understand the language that they're using the terminology it still makes perfect sense to me and it was it was amazing it felt like on the one hand my entire life up until that moment started to make a lot more sense and then my life from then on um it had there was some sort of a path there was no more complete darkness and void there was a little bit of light it was amazing. Hmm. I'm just trying to connect with what you felt back then. <laughs> and how awesome hmm. it must, must have been. 
Yes, and it's interesting. I think I had um, glimpses of moments like that. And this is something that I truly like talking about. And and even uh, last week, I was talking with, with, a, um, with a girl that she was suggesting that the focus of this podcast or a way for this podcast to go would be to explore the professional journey of people, but in a very material, practical way, right? And my thought at, and my feeling at that moment was like, how can you talk about the professional journey of a person without talking about the personal one and without not talking about the personality and what drives you on, what moves you, right? Uh, yes. And what you're saying now is just like a, such a good confirmation of you don't need to know everything, right? And as you go, just uh, try to listen to that thing that, that really moves you, that you really feel in your body, that is, is what you're meant to be doing. And it doesn't, you don't need to know everything now. And even if you do have that aha moment, you don't need to figure every detail. And <laughs> in the, the, that, the, that week, no, there's a not. lifetime. And then there's a lifetime of adjustment as well for you to just keep... Um, connecting to that feeling that you have inside that will in some mysterious way guide you towards something and help you create that um and so how was it after for you tell me talk tell me about the after well wait i want to actually comment on one small thing that you said as well in in that journey that yeah you don't need to know and Mm -hmm. and you do need to listen to your kind of your gut your intuition but at the same time like that's really hard if you told me that at 21 and be like Go fuck yourself. What the hell is a dark? What's intuition? What, I don't know what this shit is. Yeah. Um, what helped me was, so even if I found that path by accident, I had been unconsciously and consciously at least dividing things up until then into what do I know? If I don't know what I want, I do at least know what I don't want. Mm-hmm. So start actively saying no to the things I don't want. And then maybe that will push me towards at least different opportunities that I didn't know um, and maybe towards something that I do like and I do want. And and that was kind of my process to eventually get there. Do you think that part of the reason why we don't know or we can't connect to that intuition and get feeling is because of our programming? The same kind of programming you talk about in cultural intelligence in that sense that we have the sense of identity, but in that way that identity is shallow, superficial, because it's just our culture and not really our core right? Oh, very good. I think it is connected. Um, and I think it's even more connected and goes back to that idea of fitting in and belonging. Mm. So for the people who don't know what this programming is about, do you want to expand a little bit more on that as well as you talk about the fitting in and belonging as well? Sure. I mean, our, our let's say our mental and our cultural programming is the ideas of what's right, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, how things should be, that we inherit. So we didn't decide these for ourselves. We inherited inherited them, and we inherited them from the society around us. So that could be from the images that we see, the references that we have, the media that we watch, but it also comes from our families. Um, you know, the, the way that we were raised, what, what our parents told us were literally right and wrong and good and bad and so on. Um, but it's also important to note that it's, especially when it comes to family and friends and, um, and any kind of relationships that you were in or any groups that you were in, most people aren't doing this intentionally. They're not passing down their values and their beliefs and ways of being and seeing the world. Like, Cause it's not, it, it's, it is the way of seeing the world. It's way of experiencing and understanding and making meaning, but it's also the beliefs that you have and the values that you hold and also the behaviors. 
Um, and this programming is passed down to us, but people don't even realize that they're passing it down to us. So this is when I say it's inherited, but it, on both sides, it's, it's an unconscious um, transfer that's happening. And we buy into these things and we buy into these things by not questioning them. So, and often we don't question them because we just think this is how things are. This is how the world is. It, this is the right way to do things and this is the wrong way to do things. And so why am I going to question it? And I, and I, I think part of that programming is this, we have to fit into a group. And we're, we're, we're only now, I mean, really only now have I started to see language around fitting in and belonging. So I couldn't even express this or explain this before without this language. Um, and I think that a lot of times we don't find our bigger why or a deeper purpose or what we would really love as a vocation and a career in one because we had been trying so hard to fit in all of our lives. And that fitting in is part of that programming. It's... Um, Fitting in is just how do I how do I accommodate to the rules and regulations of this group, and that also requires accommodating and blending myself to believe what they believe. But it's not necessarily what I believe. It's not necessarily what I want or how I want to be. And the more we try to fit in, the less of ourselves we become, and the farther away and harder it is to access our deeper passions and what actually makes us happy. That's how I see it. That's how I understand it. Um, so I, that's one side of it. And another side of how the programming comes in is, is something I'm kind of sick of hearing about because I imagine we all know this at this point, you know, those traditional standards of you get a nine to five job, you stay in that job for a few years. Um, and if you're in North America, after three years, you move to another company, but you move up to a higher level. And if you're in certain European countries or in other cultures, you stay in that company for like decades and maybe you move up, but you just want that security. Uh, and, and you get a partner. Um, you have that traditional kind of relationship or not. doesn't matter. Actually, you just have a relationship, a stable relationship. And, and you have children, you have a house, you have a car. That's all of that is also programming. That's also, um, and that programming is, yeah, it's what we've been told, but it's also what we've seen all the time in terms of what we've seen on television and movies and references, et cetera. Um, so that's the other kind of programming that comes in. And now I forgot what the question was, but just about to talk about that programming. It's interesting that you bring this up also, because it's something that I'm starting to think about as I see that I'm, <laughs> you know, I always kind of felt like I wanted to live a different life, whatever that, that, that means or that meant back then. And now I'm feeling like I'm actually, a lot of the things in my life kind of fit in that, um, in that social script of like, yep, partner, job, <laughs> group of friends, you know, like the country you're staying, right? But I think the essential is what you're saying of um, there's nothing wrong with fitting in if you remember that that isn't ultimately what defines you and what you truly are, right? So let's say you, Shiva, are giving a workshop in a, in a corporation, right? Then it's okay if you try to fit in as long that... As, as long as you remember that's not who you truly are and that you know where you belong. And so what I'm thinking here is that actually these, these are two topics, but then on the other the other topic that I was talking about of of choosing um of, of the life and the social script and the fitting in and, and living the social script, what what my experience is telling me or suggesting is that it is okay 
if you choose the conventional life as long as you're intentional about it right so mm -hmm. you have tried uh, the relationship the no relationship even the open relationship if you have to right and you, you tried the job and you tried the freelancer and you tried the <laughs> going on spiritual retreats and then you make your own conclusions and by this time i don't mean like yes then i want to experience everything and i want to try a little bit of everything i don't think that's also the way to go but just be intentional about the choices you make in your life and ultimately that's what will help you live a happy life and a life that suits you right well absolutely yeah i mean the conventional life is is the chosen life consciously chosen life for for lots of people and that's fine as you said as long as it's intentional as long as they have tried to experience something else so that they know at least that yeah i tried something else i didn't like it i like this better and this is what i'm going to stick with mm -hmm. but i think um and then going back to that other idea of the the, the fitting in it it's okay to a point yeah it, you can fit in on the one hand, but still know who you are. But if you feel that you are always fitting in, eventually you will become a major asshole because what you're doing is separating yourself from yourself okay. every single day, day in, day out. And it becomes like a spiritual, mental, emotional torture. And then that torture, most often we start inflicting on other people because we feel like we are in a cage. We just start lashing out and hitting others. And I see that a lot. I see that a lot. People who've tried to fit in so much that they, you become angry because you've lost or you, be, you become depressed. You've lost so much of who you are or who you wanted to be or who you could have been and you just don't see a way out of it. So for me, fitting in is, it's necessary if, if there's a real threat, if there's a real danger. Um, it's also, a, you know, it's a tool. You can, you know, I can, I can change a little bit of how I am not who I am, but how I am in certain settings so that my message will get across better. So for example, in some places I won't curse or I won't curse as much, or I'll be much more careful about what I say and how I dress, but that's not all the time. That's just a certain instance that I know it's needed. And then I can step back and go back to who I am most of the time. I, I don't see fitting in as a long-term strategy for anyone. We do it, we do it all the time, but we will never be fulfilled by it. And I think it could be really dangerous and really lead to some some serious inner shit that unfortunately then gets taken out on others. I love two things that you said. Uh, two, one thing that you said, the role, I think that's very powerful that you adopt a role for a, a specific amount of time um, mm. so that you're not lost in that process. Exactly. Right? Yeah, that's also very powerful. And uh, do you think that those people who are trying to fit in and for a long time, extended periods of time, do you think that ultimately they know or they're just unconscious? Because you kind of mentioned that, but I didn't listen. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think some people are aware and some people aren't. I'm thinking that if you know in your core that it's not for you, then you can't stay there for long, right? Oh, but you can, you can. And, and it's, and I understand it because you, you've gotten so deep into that, that life that you build, you don't know how to get out of it. And it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying to, you know, if everyone has, knows you as this kind of person or in this way, it is absolutely terrifying to start showing up as who you really are because 
there's loss involved. You instinctively know that you're going to lose something. You're going to lose friendships. You're going to lose um, family members. Maybe you're going to lose relationships. You're going to lose something at work. There's a lot at stake. And are you willing to give up all of that to live who you are and who you want to be? And that's the torture. I mean, there's a lot of people who know that they're living a life that is false to who they are, that they don't belong in their own skin anymore because who they're projecting to the outside is very different than who they are on the inside. Um, they know that and it's a constant inner conflict, but they also know that they have a lot to lose if they give that up. So, I, I mean, I definitely did as well. I, I had to go through that on a lesser level than many, but still, and it is you know, I stayed in relationships and I stayed in situations that I really couldn't be myself for much longer because I was just afraid of losing the people involved in them. Mm -hmm. I think this is a whole another conversation. So I'm thinking that, um, so I'm 22, when I'm like 42, <laughs> I'll invite you for another podcast. And this time we will focus on that one. <laughs> no, no, that, I mean, that's something to start at your age to be honest you know the longer you hold off having that conversation with yourself the harder it gets to to get out of a life that you're not happy with okay so uh two last questions that in a way kind of go together mm -hmm. one advice you would give to the 20 year old chiva and if you feel like not um, making it personal just for a 20 year old for the youth one advice that chiva would like to have received when she was in her 20s Mm, gosh, um, there's a few things, two things, because I can never answer anything directly. One is, um, it's more than more than advice. It's just like a reminder or a knowing that everything is going to be okay. Everything will be okay. At 20 years old, I was terrified. I had, I mean, didn't know what the fuck was going to happen. I was about to graduate university. I had no career path. I had no idea of what I, what I was going to do. My parents were immigrants. They did not build a successful life for themselves in the United States. They did not. Um, and I desperately wanted to make things better for them and, and having made all their sacrifices worth it and still enjoy my life. I had no fucking idea how to do any of that. And it was so scary. So I really wish, I wish I just knew that everything always works out. Everything will be okay, period. Um, and then the second thing I wish I knew was everything that we're talking about. Just this idea of, I wish I knew who I was. And the advice that I could give is find who you are. And finding who you are is, you know, it's, it's really requires taking a deep look at your past of how you got to where you are and who you are now so that you understand what are the values that you have? What are the assumptions that you hold about life? What are the belief systems that you have? What's the mindset, the paradigms, the lens that you're seeing life through? That's what I mean by know yourself. You know, know, know the glasses that you're wearing to see the world and understand the world through. And then start consciously making choices. Do I want to use these lenses or do I want to use a different pair of lenses? Mm -hmm. And now... How do you how do you make sure that you're not sleepwalking through your waking state? Ask yourself why mm. for everything. It, every time you have an experience, because our, our in your body, an experience in your body, our bodies speak to us. That's something I definitely did not know until my 30s. But of course, I did know it. I mean, you know, there are situations where you're like, I feel uncomfortable here. I don't know what to do. 
or if someone says something that you feel uncomfortable with, but you don't know what to say, or someone does something and you feel uncomfortable, don't know how to respond. Um, or, you know, even going to an interview and you're like, I'm scared shitless. Why do I get terrified every single time I go to a goddamn interview? <laughs> Just sit with yourself, <laughs> sit with yourself and ask yourself, why, why is it? Why is it that I'm so nervous when I go into this, in, into this interview process? Well, I'm nervous that I won't get a job. Well, you know, is that really true? Is it really true that you're nervous you won't get a job or is there something else? And, and is this the only job available? No, there isn't. So what else might be, what else might you be afraid of? Well, I might be afraid of the, uh, the rejection. Well, why are you so afraid of rejection? You know, um, because I, I don't love myself enough to be able to, to pick myself back up after I'm rejected or I don't, you know, I, I don't think I'm enough anyway. And it would be a confirmation of that. So it's, it's getting to those deeper thoughts by asking yourself why, and just sitting with yourself, like having a conversation an in-depth, intimate, personal conversation with yourself. That's how you can live intentionally and live more awake. Thank you, Shiva. It was a pleasure listening to you. It always is. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. This has been, I mean, I said in the beginning, my intention is to just be myself completely and to really enjoy it. And this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> If this conversation or part of this conversation moved you in some way, please share it with someone you love who might benefit from it. If you want to keep updated on future episodes, I invite you to subscribe to this podcast on your podcast app. In case you're curious about some of the reference made throughout the episode or want to find our guests on social media, check out the links on the description of this episode. Last but not least, thank you for listening and connecting. See you in two weeks. Bye!